tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Oh, here we are then. Quick, let me take my pulse. I'm live, <laughs> at least at the moment, thank God. Well, that said, Happy New Year, and let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. And Lord, we, there's a little baby who needs our prayer, a little baby named Sophia. We pray for her mom and um, for her family, and we ask for her healing and, and her well-being. Um, also, Lord, we, we pray for the repose of the soul of... Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, who was your, your great servant in the world. Eternal rest grant to him, O Lord, let perpetual light shine upon him. May his soul, the souls of the faithful departed through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, let's go to the big book on the coffee table yet once again. There are a number of possible readings for today. The ones I, <coughs> excuse me, I have chosen are the ones at the USCCB site, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. That's always my go-to. When I wonder what reading should I, do, that's my go, my go-to, uh, the USCCB. And um, the first reading is taken from the first letter of Saint John, the second chapter, the twenty-ninth to the third chapter the sixth verse. Again, uh, let's go with my strange translation here. You know, I, I really have agonized over over these words for a lifetime. Uh, like, what does love? Uh, what is righteousness? What is justification? And and now that I'm old, I, I think I'm getting a little, a little bit of a handle on some of them. I'm, I hope I'm right. So if you consider that God is righteous... You also know that everyone who acts in righteousness is begotten by him. I think you really have to be careful of, of, well, of, of what righteousness is. Because we live in such an anti, I guess the word is antinomy. That means against law. That's what, what um, St. John is talking about here. People hate law. And law is such a gift. It protects us 
from from the baser instincts of humanity, and it protects us from ourselves. So, so law is very, very important. Oh Lord, I love your law. So, when we hear the word righteous, we think of uh, um, someone who is never wrong and points out our faults. We think of self-righteous, and and that's not what we're talking about here. Righteousness is defined as proper relationship to God and to our fellow human beings. We're in right relationship. So what is that right relationship? That right relationship is defined by the nature of God. And part of that that nature of God is um, clearly delineated in the Ten Commandments. Again, let me share with you. The Ten Commandments are one of God's greatest gifts to humanity. They talk about right relationship to God in the first three commandments, that you, you, you sh- should not worship anyone but God, you should not profane the name of God, and you should give God his due in prayer, honor, honor the, the Sabbath, honor the Lord's Day. And for us Christians, every day is the Lord's Day, but particularly Sunday. I don't have time to go into that. Um, quite now, but I will later. But um, then the others define our relationship to humanity. It's interesting. God only takes up three of the commandments. The rest are about our relationship to our fellow human being because God loves the world. He doesn't love the sinful fallen nature, but he loves humanity and he loves the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God gives seven of his commandments uh, in, in, uh, um, in, the, uh, uh, in the Decalogue for humanity, and they define the nature of God. The fourth commandment, as we Catholics note them, honor your father and your mother. Uh, well, God is, as we read in the letter to the Ephesians, the source of all paternity. Uh, the name of Father. So, God, God is is He created the family as His first hierarchy to reflect His paternal love for us. Um, God, thou shalt not kill. God is the giver of life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. God is faithfulness. You shall not steal. God is is grace and generosity. You shall not uh, um, uh, lie. God is truth. Uh, you shall not uh, covet either your neighbor's goods uh, or uh, anything that belongs to him. That's a very important commandment because when we look at our neighbor and say, oh God, you've been good to him, you've been bad to me, we're saying we don't believe in grace. God has not been generous. So these reflect the nature of God and they reflect the full nature of humanity, just as I would not steal, I should not be stolen from, just as I would not be cheated on, I should not cheat, just as I would not be lied to, I should not lie, and so on. These define the nature of God to a degree, and they define the the the, the perfect goal of humanity very well. So these are a gift. But we come to know God's nature fully in the person of Jesus. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Our religion teaches that if you want to get to know what the creator of the universe is like, look at a Jewish carpenter who was born in a barn and died under arrest. Sounds a little ludicrous, but it's true. He is the very 
nature of God in flesh. So righteousness, I believe, can be can be called the nature of God. So if you consider that if you consider what God is like, if you consider that God is righteous, you also know that everyone who acts according to God's nature is his child. See what love the Father has bestowed on us. So um, this is wonderful. Beloved, we are God's children now, yet what we shall be has not yet been revealed. We do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There is a wonderful, the conclusion of, of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters describes this transformation given us by the vision of God at the end, if we die in a state of grace. It's, it's magnificent. You know, I'm going to stand before God one day, and everything that is in me that isn't light and love will be burned away by the light, the perfect light of God. And if there is no light in me, and there is no love in me, there will be nothing left of me. I will be damned. But if there is something reflecting the nature of God in me, the very light of God that, that, that in which I will stand fully at, at the judgment, that uh, this is how I see it. Take it, you know, take it, as I always say, with a big grain of salt. But this is how I see it, that, that when I stand before God, there's the salt shaker, but when I stand before God, Everything that in me that isn't light, everything in me that is darkness will go. What what is darkness? It's merely the absence of light. Darkness is not a thing. It's the lack of a thing. That that the darkness in me. If I am all darkness, there's nothing there, and the light of God will will sear it away. So I, I think this is just a very very beautiful beautiful uh, uh, reality. So um, at any rate, let's see here. Uh, is there anything else I want to kibitz on? Kibitz, that's a Yiddish word meaning kibitz. No one who remains in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or known him. Okay. Uh-oh, I sin. Uh, I, I don't know if you sin, but I do. I, I am not yet achieved sinlessness. So so what what's what's going on here? Well, part of me... <laughs> is sinful and part of me responds to the grace of God. And so um, I think the important uh, thing is to re- the, the, the word remain, you know, if to, to remain. Well, well, what does that word mean? It means to abide. It means to live. No one who lives in God um, uh, sins. And so I would say that we can, I, I would, I hope I'm right about this, but I would interpret that to say that that um, uh, you either abide in sin or you abide in God. Now, I have told you about um, uh, this 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 odd thing about Greek verbs. There's something called the aorist tense. Oh dear, I can hear anyone who's ever tried to study Greek sort of breaking into a cold sweat with this, the aorist tense, that literally means uh, a tense without boundaries. But it, it, one of the forms of it means the simple past. Uh, I did it. <laughs> but there's an, imp- uh, an aorist uh, imperative and an aorist participle. 
how could there be an aorist imperative? That's that's crazy. I mean, do it in the past. No, no, the aorist, the aorist imperative, the command form in that tense in Greek just means do it, just as we say it in English. But then they have something called the present imperative. Do it and keep doing it till I tell you to stop. Oh. And there's also a present participle, which means keep doing it. And this is a present participle. So this idea of 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 remain it really means to dwell it it, it means to wait um keep waiting for him keep uh, keep dwelling in him keep abiding in him the one who keeps abiding him does not sin now remember sin means to miss the target the one who keeps dwelling in him does not miss the target everyone who who keeps sinning <laughs> Uh, and that's the present, the present participle has not seen him. It does not know him. So this is about, this isn't about, oh gosh, I made a mess. I sinned. You go to confession, you repent, you're golden. This is the one who persists in sinning. So this is, that's what that tense mean. The one who persists in sin uh, has never known him. Oh, yes, I'm a Christian, and hey, <laughs> I got a stereo that I want to sell you cheap, that kind of thing. No one who keeps remaining in him fails, and no one who keeps sinning has seen him or known him. I can claim to be a Christian, but um, if I if I don't try my level best to receive his grace and to receive the gift he gives me of of remaining in him. So th this last line isn't about when we think, oh, I sinned, boom, done. No, the one who keeps sinning, uh, um, the one who, 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 who keeps abiding, keeps living in Christ despite his weakness. So this is a process. It isn't a one-shot deal here. I really believe that the translation says that. Now, no, that is not an excuse to say, well, I've sinned, but I still am, my heart's in the right place. Doesn't where you matter where where your heart is, it's where the rest of you is. Um behavior is very, very important. All right, let us quickly look at the um at the gospel. Um <clears throat> you know the there are there are people who claim to be scholars who say, well, the letters of St. John couldn't possibly have been written by St. John. The, the book of Revelation couldn't have. I don't know. I wasn't there. When I read these things, I find them very consistent. And I have no problem thinking that John the Evangelist was also the author of uh, the book of Revelation. There's some early fathers who, who seem to be ambiguous about it. But I think the general consensus is the book of Revelation was written by John, the beloved disciple. And I think certainly the gospel and the letters are written by John, the beloved disciple, because they are so similar. Again, I don't know if you've noticed, but the Gospel of John is so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke make more sense to us earth people. Um, the Gospel of John, what? It's, you know, and then the letters of, of John, there's obscure poetry, and uh, I'm not that poetic a soul myself. Remember, John, the beloved disciple was a follower of John the Baptist before he was a follower of Jesus. In the four characters, the man, the lion, the um, the ox, and the eagle, those four symbols for the evangelist, the symbol for John is always the eagle, because the eagle soars above 
I find John very difficult to understand, and that's because I really believe the Gospel of John was addressed to the followers of John the Baptist. John, the beloved disciple, I believe, wrote his Gospel to remind the followers of John the Baptist that Jesus had said, uh, that John the Baptist, rather, had said, I'm not the Messiah, and that's what he's saying here. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, Dr. Hahn makes a wonderful, I, I don't know if he stole this, but if he did, I'd steal it from him. Uh, Behold the Lamb of God. This idea of the Lamb of God is just mentioned in the book of Revelation and in uh, the Gospel of John. What's going on here? Well, remember the sacrifice of Abraham, the binding of Isaac, more properly called? And don't worry, Isaac was 33 years old, according to the rabbis, when he went up the mountain. Um, uh, that's uh, another story for another day. But uh, he asked his father, Abraham, we have fire, we have wood. Where is the lamb of sacrifice? And the Lord, Abraham said, the Lord will provide. And they got up to the mountain. Abraham broke the bad news to his son Isaac. Isaac allowed Abraham to bind him, and he crawled up on the altar. If he didn't want to, he could have pushed Abraham away. He was 100 years old, Abraham. He could have said, Are you crazy old man, I'm telling mother. Well, uh, um, he didn't. He said, okay, this is what God wants. So he's on the altar bound on this pile of wood that is going to burn his body, and Abraham lifts the knife, and the angel appears and holds back the hand of Abraham and says, wait. Now, I always point out that the, 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 the binding of Isaac, the sacrifice of Abraham, was not canceled. It was merely postponed. Uh, that It's as if God said to Abraham, wait a minute, we'll do this together. Because Jesus, the son of Mary, our Lord, the son of our blessed mother, was the son of Abraham through Mary, the princess of the house of David. Jesus is both son of God, we believe, and son of Abraham. It's as if God said, let us do this together. The son of God, the son of Abraham, were sacrificed on the altar of the cross, Mary standing in at the foot for the church, and in a certain sense, I think, for Father Abraham. The sacrifice was not canceled. It was merely postponed. And on the mountain, when, when uh, Abraham uh, put down the knife, they saw a ram caught in the bushes and they sacrificed the ram to God. Now a ram is not a lamb. It is a different word. God had not yet provided the lamb of sacrifice. He provided a ram of sacrifice, different thing. That's why John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God. He's saying, finally, the, the, the sacrifice of Abram, the binding of Isaac will be fulfilled and completed on Calvary. Um, I'm going long. I always go long, but just a thought. God, I've said this to you a thousand times, God only works through covenants, not through contracts. You can't bribe God. You can A contract is I give you that you might give me. A covenant is I give you myself that you might give me yourself. Marriage is a covenant. Other things that are not respected are contracts. God wants to make covenant with human beings. Now, when you go to Mass, you're going to the sacrifice of Calvary. You're in a time tunnel going to the sacrifice of Calvary. You're also going to the binding of Isaac on Mount Moriah. Most people say, what do you get out of Mass? 
I don't get much out of it. Who told you you were supposed to get anything out of Mass? You go to Mass to give. You go to Mass to put yourself on that altar with Christ. Did Abraham climb Mount Moriah in order to get something? No. He climbed Mount Moriah to give. Did the Blessed Mother climb Mount Calvary to stand at the foot of her son to get something? No, she went up that, old, that, that, that mountain to give. And when you go to Mass... You're giving your life one more time to Jesus, saying, as he puts his body, blood, soul, and divinity on this altar for me, I put my body, blood, soul, and humanity on this altar for him and for the world for which he gave his life. That's what it means to take the Holy Eucharist. You don't go to Mass to get. Father, I didn't get the wine. You don't go to Mass to get. You go to Mass to give. Who told you you were supposed to get something out of Mass? He is worthy. And so... We are obliged. It's called Sunday Obligation. With that, we'll take a break. And I got a few letters I want to look at. And, uh, and uh, we'll come back with, uh, with letters. The phones are open. And we are live. It's the 3rd of January. The 3rd, 888-914-9149. Here again with the waltz music. I'll waltz a little while we take a break. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for independent thinkers at relevantradio.com forward slash U Dallas. I'm back in the saddle again Out where a friend is a friend where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly Jimson weed, I'm back ah, yes. in the saddle again. Back on the airwaves again. No longhorn cattle, but there's a whole lot of cows where I am at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and, and a mountain lion or two, but that's all right. They're generally scaredy cats, I hope. Let's go to oh eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. Lots of lines open eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. But let us now go to letters. I got a letter from Connie, and I got a letter from a number of people, and I think uh, a lot of you know that. I, you know, I usually don't mention last names, but this is this is an exception that. A wonderful, wonderful friend, Therese Turpik, died. She was a friend of Relevant Radio and uh, a friend to me. Uh, and I, I believe she's with the Lord. But she was, um, <clears throat> I remember I, I gave a talk about a Lady of Fatima, and she was there, and I went, finished the talk, sat down at the table where I was, and I'm sitting next to Therese. She said, you know, my father saw that. Um, he did. Yeah, he was in the trenches in, in uh, France. In World War One, and you, it could be seen not just in Fatima, but it was seen all over Europe. Uh, <clears throat> there was something odd going on with the sun. And uh, I had a pastor who uh, was in seminary in Rome uh, at, uh, in 1917, and he said that he also saw the miracle of the sun. Uh, so. Uh, uh, you know, Therese uh, was just a real gift um, uh, in so many ways, but that was a great gift to me, that, that to be able to say I, I heard testimony of very directly of two people who were witnesses to the Fatima event, and it really, really happened. So 
uh, the many blessings that Therese was and continues to be. I'm sure she prays for all of us. So to her family, to her friends, our condolences, but also our congratulations. God bless you. Okay, now I got a letter here that is one of my, it regards one of my very favorite pet peeves. Uh, let's see here. This is from Mary in Sacramento, and she has, she has pressed one of my liturgical buttons. Oh, this makes me crazy. Those After announcements that are together, mass exactly. This is this is really mass hysterical, and Therese or Mary, I am completely on your side in this. After announcements are said before mass, the announcer says, "Please stand to greet our presider, Father Blank, or please stand for our presider, Father Blank." Is this proper? No. I. I you want a liturgical document? I don't need a liturgical document on this one. You're not standing to greet me. If you're if you're interested in greeting me, just sit there and wave. Um, I find this so offensive, and I think next time I hear a person say that, uh, a, a commentator before me asks, "Let us stand and and sing our opening song. Let us stand to greet our celebrant and and begin our opening song." Oh, you're singing for me? Stop! You can't sing very well. <laughs> I don't like that hymn. You see how ridiculous this is? It's utterly ridiculous. I, I wrote a letter years ago when I when I uh, put the tabernacle back in the middle in the church of which I was then pastor. And I said, if anyone objected, I wasn't going to put the tabernacle back for two weeks. If you had problems with it, talk to me. Well, all the progressives didn't bother, and they were horrified when they saw the tabernacle back in the middle. Well, tough. Um, there were people who wept for joy when they saw it back in the middle. Uh, now, the tabernacle has not always been in the middle in the history of the church. It just was put in the middle when it was found necessary to emphasize Eucharistic devotion. And I think we are still in need of the tabernacle in the middle. The most important spot in a church is the center point, uh, despite modern art's brutalist approach to, to things, brutalist architecture, which, which defies symmetry. Symmetry is important. <clears throat> What's important is right in the middle of your gaze and... In our times, I think it's very important to have the tabernacle in the middle of our gaze or at least close in the sanctuary. It depends where you are. If there's a place where there's no problem with Eucharistic piety, well, that's different. But in most parish churches, I think there is. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that. Again, uh, where people know the Eucharist and believe it uh, to be the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, if you have it... It's supposed to be in a place of greatest honor in the, in the sanctuary. It doesn't have to be in the middle. Uh, but I think in a general way, it's a good thing to put it in the middle uh, where there is, uh, you know, for instance, in a monastery. There are, in a good Catholic monastery, they all believe in the real presence. You don't have to have the Eucharist right, right front and center. Uh, in a place where nobody believes it, I would put it in right front and center. So that's, that's just my approach. The, the the Second Vatican Council said it should be uh, in the place of, of uh, greatest uh, greatest reverence, and that can be interpreted differently, admittedly. But this is, I said in that letter that, that with the priest sitting in, in the middle, you know, where the tabernacle used to be, that's my real problem. That, that having the great throne of Ming the Merciless up there where I sit looking like the Emperor Nero, um, 
the priest and the bishop traditionally sat on the side. They never sat in the center. And then after the, well, in some, some old cathedrals, yeah, the, the, the bishop's chair is right in the center. But in later churches, the, the bishop, when the bishop presided, it was on the side. Uh, <clears throat> so all that said, I wrote in this letter that the mass has become very priest centered. Oh, I don't like that priest. So I don't go to that mass. In the old days, when we had our backs to you, <laughs> you couldn't see what priest was up there. He said the Mass, it wasn't about him. Now it's so often about Father. And all that said, I know I'm being a little un unthinking in my comments, but please stand to greet our presider. Next time I hear someone say that, I'm going to shout, don't stand to greet me, we're greeting the Lord. And I would recommend to any of my brethren clergy who are listening, unless you want to be greeted, unless you think the Mass is all about you, I would do that. I would make sure that the commentators stop saying, and now let us stand to greet Father. You're not greeting me, you're greeting the Lord. I'm going to yell it out next time. It'll shock everybody. Huh, that'll be fun. All right, again. This idea of the placement of the tabernacle, for me, it is a catechetical thing, and I believe the tabernacle should be in the middle where it is necessary for catechesis. Uh, the, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, to pick a middle ground here because in the, in, the medie in the medieval church, it was not in the middle. In the early church, it was not in the middle. Uh, in fact, in the early church, they would have these containers that they would hang from the ceiling with the Blessed Sacrament. And the purpose of it being not so much Eucharistic adoration as having the Blessed Sacrament available to take to those who were dying or in prison. Uh, those who were about to face martyrdom or, or that sort of thing. So this idea that, well, Jesus said we should put it in the middle. No, he didn't. But on the other hand, where it is a catechetical uh, and devotional uh, benefit, it should be in the middle. Um, that's kind of my approach. I, I actually am odd in the way that I like Eucharistic chapels where the focus can really be on the tabernacle in that setting. But I don't know, I could go on and on about this as I am at the moment. So let's see, let's look at the time. I think I can do one more letter here. Okay. This is, um, as I am rereading and studying, I'm looking for an answer on where Paul was ordained bishop. I see that he clearly was a bishop since he consecrated Timothy. But where was Paul made bishop? Oh, gosh, this is a doctorate. <laughs> you know, we expect the early church to look exactly like the church. Now, Peter wore a white cassock and a white yarmulke. No, he didn't. You know, these things have developed. And the, yeah, and the voice in my head said, red shoes. No, Peter did not wear red shoes. Uh, I, maybe he did. I don't think so. But I strongly doubt he had the white cassock and the white kippah, the white uh, yarmulke on his on his head. Um, the um, no, uh, these things developed for good reason and are beautiful symbols that have been cherished for centuries and shouldn't be easily thrown away. I'm not saying that that we should throw these things away. But you have to understand that the the reality of what Christ had given unfolded. Um, especially in the first 50 years of the history of the church. We see a very developed version of the church, what they call an ecclesiology, by the time you get to uh, 
uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch, and that, that ecclesiology was always there, but it did unfold. I suspect that the idea of the elder, the presbyter, and the supervisor, that is the bishop, the word bishop means, it's from a Greek word meaning supervisor, the word priest is from a Greek word meaning elder, I think that they were conferred together, and that they were thought of as the same thing. Uh, so when was, when was, uh, um, here I'm going to, I'm, you can hear me clicking, uh, that, that, uh, Paul and Barnabas were ordained, uh, in, in Antioch. We see this, uh, now in the, this is chapter 13, verse one of the book of Acts, Acts 13, one. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who'd been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work uh, to which I have called them. And after they had fasted and prayed, they laid hand, their hands on them and sent them off. They were ordained. That sounds to me like an ordination in its, in its earliest form. Uh, it is developed with certain prayers and rituals that are very important and very beautiful. But there we see the nucleus of, of what was to be. So if you ask me, when was Paul ordained a bishop? It's in Acts 13.2. He wasn't ordained by Peter. He was ordained uh, by the church at Antioch, which would have included its elder or supervisor. So uh, there you go. All right. I hope that answers the question. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with a word of the day. And we will open the phone. Or the phones are open at 888 888- 914-914-9149. Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help with this year's health insurance open enrollment. They offer individual, couple, and family options to best fit your needs. Before January 15th, Visit relevantradio.com slash forester. Well, there was a woman from Samaria came to the well to get some water. There she met a stranger who did a story tell that a woman dropped a pitcher. She drank and was made richer from the water he gave her. And it was not in the well. Oh, yes, the water in the well. Jesus talked about water and compared it water to the Holy Spirit. And let's go to the word of the day. You were expecting me to rant and rave about it, this idea of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Well, oddly enough, I don't think the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit occurs in the entire New Testament. The verb does, the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, on whomever you see the Spirit come down and remain. There's that remaining again. He is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The verb appears, the noun doesn't. And I think that's significant. What does baptize mean? It is it is the simple Greek word to immerse, baptizo. If you dunked a donut in coffee, that would you would use the word Baptizo, baptizo. I don't know what the word for donut is in Greek. Uh, donaton, baptizo donaton. It's just the word for to immerse. A person who was grieving was said to be baptized in tears. A person who was 
uh, drunk was said to be baptized in wine. They're immersed in wine, immersed in. So when you hear the water, the word baptism, it just means immersion. Well, we just sprinkle. Uh, don't be such a literalist. We're to be immersed in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're to be immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And immersion is, oddly enough, still technically preferred in the Catholic Church. It's just people don't want the clergy drowning their babies. I can see their point. We aren't all of us that coordinated. This one isn't. Uh, but it, it simply means to immerse. So let us think about this. To To be immersed in the Holy Spirit, to be as one is drunk with wine, to be immersed with the Holy Spirit, to be just satiated with the... Well, what's the Holy Spirit? You know, the Holy Spirit is the first person of the Holy Trinity that you meet. St. Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord. And I believe that means no one can say that Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No one can say that, that Jesus is the visible image of, of the God of the Old Testament, YHWH. No one can say that except by the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? You know, and I've heard this from a lot of people, and I don't mean to be insulting about this. I have great respect for, I owe a great debt to many people who are not uh, Catholic. But it is a funny thing. I have known a lot of people who are not raised as Catholics, who the first time they, you know, you go into a nice Protestant church, it's a wonderful, peaceful place to sit and pray. But you go into a Catholic church, and there's something weird going on. It's like there's somebody there. And that's because there is. Jesus is present in the tabernacle by the power of the Holy Spirit. You follow? There's somebody there. There's a, you know, there's breathing. If you go into a darkened place in here, you get out of there quick because there's somebody in there. I have known people who've come into a, a, a Catholic church uh, or a Catholic chapel where the Blessed Sacrament is reserved. And they literally run out of there. I remember one guy who was uh, a practitioner of voodoo who it was like you'd thrown a cat in a bathtub. He just scrambled up those stairs out of there and he stood on the front lawn panting and saying, what have you gotten there? What have you gotten there? Of course, we had the Holy Spirit making Christ present in the Eucharist. So this, 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 I don't know if it's a good theological definition, but I think it's a good practical definition. The Holy Breath, the Holy Spirit is the is the presence of God perceived. And the Holy Spirit is the first person of the Trinity that you meet. You wouldn't believe that Jesus is God. You wouldn't sense the nearness of Jesus if you hadn't met the Holy Spirit. You know, everyone you meet today uh, is going to be breathing, uh, unless you're at a funeral, uh, and then the person isn't quite there, isn't fully there. The body is, but not, not the soul. Everyone you meet today is going to be breathing. Did you notice that? Well, no. The Holy Spirit is spiritually like the air we breathe. And we don't notice it all the time. But there are moments when you feel this intense awareness of the nearness of God. That is an act of the Holy Spirit. And what John is saying is you can be immersed in that presence of God. And immersed not just once, but many times and sometimes quite permanently. So um, just this idea of baptism, the word uh, uh, baptism does appear, but not, I think, with what baptism were you baptized? Uh, Paul asks a number of people in, in Turkey, 
But um, the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit, I don't think appears. But to baptize in the Holy Spirit, that most certainly is in the Scripture. All right, let's go to phones. There is something the matter with your fin. I hope not. I hope not. And we got Patricia on the line. Patricia from Reno, Nevada. What can I do for you, Patricia? Yes. Hi, Father Simon. Thank you so much for all your help through the years with your show. I, I oh, do really, you. I really appreciate you so much. Um, uh, okay, so I'll just try to make this quick. Um, did I, I? My question is: Did I sin by not going to Sunday Mass last Sunday because of a fear? of my car getting stuck in snow, which had happened the Saturday before. And also, I have to admit, it was also to not distress my elderly mother, who's not Catholic, who was angry that I was thinking of going to Mass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I don't think you, you sinned. It, you, to, to sin seriously, you have to have a full turning of the will. And you very much wanted to go to Mass. Uh, um, but... Uh, I had a situation this weekend. I was supposed to say Mass at a little church near where I live. And the fog was so bad you couldn't see five feet in front of your face. And the roads were ice. I mean, I I, I was walking on a gravel walkway and the gravel was slippery. We had to cancel that Mass. So there were people who couldn't go to Mass. Weather sometimes does that. So, no, it was a reasonable fear. And and, uh, uh, therefore... You certainly did not sin by missing Mass. So does that help? That helps so much, yes. Thank you, Father Simon. Thank you for all that you do. And God well, bless you. I keep you in my prayers. Keep you in your prayers. Please do. Yes. I, it helps. Okay, okay. Thank, okay. thank you. Thank you God so bless much, Father. We, okay, bye-bye. We got, now we got a call from Vegas. Jody, what can I do for you from Las Vegas, Nevada? Hi, Father Simon. Another huge fan, a fellow Nevada in here. We love you in well, Nevada. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I have a question about. <laughs> I have a question about um, along the lines of what you were saying, where please stand for the priest, and it's not for the priest. Um, is it also along the same lines where, if even the priest at the end of the mass might say like to clap for the, for the band or something? Is that along the same lines? Oh, oh, oh. I'm not a fan of that. I'm like not a fan, and I and I, but I also don't want to make a. I don't want to make a stink about it because I don't want to be like that Catholic that's like trying to be so righteous. And I don't know how to approach it. Well, you, I, I would approach it first by not clapping. I mean, I, well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't. Yeah, clap. I'm glad you don't. And if someone asks you, why aren't you clapping? Say, oh, I thought that was, I thought, I thought we were honoring God, not the choir. <laughs> you know, just say, uh, just add, play dumb and say, oh, I thought we were there to honor God, not the choir. Uh, yeah, I think it is a it is a very, very bad thing. It, it doesn't invalidate the mass, but it certainly does, I think, diminish the blessing of the mass. You know, that, that if I act as if I'm coming for an entertainment, which is part of clapping. Now, there are moments to applaud in church if someone says, you know, the Schultzes have been married for 103 years. Let's give them a round of, that's okay. You know, the priest says that in the sermon or at the end, at the end of mass, when a couple comes up and renews their vows, sometimes that happens at masses. If it's a small and cozy community, um, yeah, then, then applause is appropriate. But to applaud the choir, I think, is a kind of sin of blasphemy because you are, you are saying that, that, 
the worship we've given God is nothing. That's what blasphemy means, to, to, to say that something is meaningless. And in a way, applauding at the end of Mass for the choir or for the show, well, for the good show, that's blasphemous. Uh, it, it detracts from the worship of God. Now, there are certain situations, I, you know, I've been to really good prayer meetings where everybody gives God a large round of applause and it can be a bit raucous. That's still aimed at God. But when you, when you clap at the end of Mass, it's a nice show, Father, a nice show, choir. Let's go have breakfast. That diminishes the sanctity of the Mass, I believe. Does that answer your question, Jody? It, it certainly does. And let me ask you to piggyback on that. If it were to be after the Mass, after the priest says, okay, our Mass is concluded, you know, go in peace, give the final blessing. Because a lot of times before they oh, congratulate yeah. somebody for being married for 60 years, they'll say, okay, the Mass is concluded. And then, it'll, and then okay, and then everybody sits down. So we know, like, the, the celebration of the Mass is over. But the the part about the choir usually happens before that's spoken. Now, yeah. what if it happens yeah. after that's spoken? It is, I, I personally believe, and this is just me, I personally believe it okay. is never appropriate to applaud for okay. a choir uh, uh, at the liturgy. To to Now, for instance, we'd like to thank our choir for the many years of faithful service, you know, then an applause would be appropriate. You're thanking the choir for their okay. service. You're not saying nice show. But anytime you okay. express a nice show, you diminish the Eucharist. There. That's my opinion. And I, I get so tired of it when I hear that. It just, it's tiring. So that's, that. you know, there are moments when applause in church is appropriate. There are moments... And many more of them, when it's done, it's most inappropriate. So I hope that helps a little. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. God bless, Jody. Nice to talk to you. Let's go to Chris from Chicago in good old Illinois. What can I do for you, Chris? Good afternoon, Father. Merry Christmas to you, and God bless Mary, you all Mary, at Olivet Radio. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, we have a big question here. A group of us were talking about this yesterday. Um, usually the Pope will announce before the liturgical year what the new year upcoming is dedicated to. And last Hmm. year, nobody could figure it out, and somebody sent um, the Pope's monthly intentions for the year, and then somebody sent me something published just saying that the Pope requested before 2025 that during 2023 we read the documents of Vatican II. So is, do you know, do you have more information, Father? Is there a formal dedication? I don't. I mean, that's kind of a new thing and I'm kind of an old dog and it's a new trick (laughs) that, that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, this is the year of St. Joseph. This is the year of, of, uh, being nice to your neighbor. This is, that's kind of a new thing. Um, and okay. I, again, I have I have not heard um, uh, any any um, declaration on, uh, on on the intention for the year. Um, um, there are the monthly intentions, uh, um, but I don't know that this is the year of the catechism or the. It's been kind of for a few years the year of this, that, and the other thing. Uh, but I, right. I don't. I haven't. I don't know. Uh, the the uh, before it's 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 
All I know is that the, the Pope would like us to study the documents of the Second Vatican Council um, beginning in 2023 and ending in 2025. So it would seem that the two years would be the years of the documents of the Second Vatican Council. And when they read the, the Constitution on the Liturgy, I think people will be very surprised that uh, the Mass as we have it now is not exactly as the Council Fathers envisioned. They wanted Gregorian chant in Latin. And uh, what we have now is really not the Mass of the Second Vatican Council, but the Mass of the of the liturgical movement that accompanied it. So uh, it'll be interesting. Uh, the council, I would love everyone to read the council documents. I think they're absolutely beautiful. And we Father, didn't read where the council could we find documents. Those? You just you can Is get there them online. A book on the, them or yeah, there's a the whole collection okay. documents of the Second Vatican Council. You can find book any bookstore, any Catholic bookstore online. Yes, the, the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Very easy to Thank find. Thank you so much, Father. I think I have like eight copies on my bookshelf of it. Yeah, and we didn't we didn't worry about the di- we didn't worry about the documents. We talked about the spirit of Vatican II. Heck, it was Ghost of Christmas Past, as far as I was concerned. But uh, um, you know, the 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 council documents are are very beautiful and and uh, very important, and I think very unread. So I'm all behind the Holy Father's intention to have us read these documents because um, people have said and done the most outrageous things in the name of the Second Vatican Council, and it wasn't what was intended. I think we need to be students of the Council. So I hope that helps, Chris. All right? Yes, it does, Father. God bless you. Oy. Oy, as Job said to the Lord. Oy. All right. Thank let's you. Let's go. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Mark from Rosemont, uh, what is it? Rosemont California. Mark, what yes, can I do Father, for thanks. you? Okay, so if a couple uh, might be preparing to be engaged for the sacrament of marriage, yes. how um, how much do you think they should reveal to one another of their past sins? Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, if, if it's to get it off your chest, don't bother. But if it is to let the person you're marrying know whom they are marrying, then you should. I would certainly say any any uh, addictions, any treatment for mental illness, and any past intimacies that were okay. that were physical. Yeah, I would. I would. Uh, I think that uh, you know that that uh, uh, pray about it. You know, you don't want to get something off yeah. your church off your chest by hurting someone you love. If the purpose of it is is so that. That, that they know who they're marrying. That's one thing. The purpose, uh, uh, just, you know, getting it off my chest, well, that's not, I hope that's a good rule of thumb. But I would certainly say that uh, what you would want to know about her, she should have the right to know about you. That may be the way to look at it. But speak. speaking of looking at things, Drew's coming up, and he's got a very positive outlook.